Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on escape analysis uh, versus escape detection and why you might care. Okay, so the real answer, you know, the short answer is you probably don't care because both are highly advanced compiler optimizations. That is, they're useful for making code run faster. Now, it turns out in the land of C and C++ and malloc and free and languages without garbage collection, people routinely do escape analysis by hand without realizing it. It's just a thing that's part of the coding style or environment of those languages. And so I'll get there when I get there, but escape detection um, outdoes escape analysis by a fair amount. Having a hardware help is was useful. Um, it might still pay off without hardware, but it is an advanced speed optimization. So I'll, I'll step through why it's there and you know what you might care about it and what the hardware was for. So this was at Azul Systems, by the way, where I had uh, a chance to work with some custom hardware for running Java. Okay, so what is escape analysis? And I'm starting there because this has been around a long time. There's 20 years of academic literature on escape analysis and a number of PhDs you know, came through on it. It's an interesting looking analysis that says, um, if I can determine the lifetime of an object that's been allocated, so an allocation's lifetime, here it is allocated, it begins its life, here it is no longer ever used again, then I can reclaim it statically in the compiler and not dynamically using garbage collection at runtime. It's a way to reduce runtime costs, but there's more. So having done escape analysis and determined I have a fixed lifetime, if I can sort of inline my way or have a compiler see from the beginning of that object to the end, then I can determine all kinds of interesting properties about its aliasing. In particular, it might not alias with any other instance of that object. It might be a temporary. And as soon as I can make that next leap of, of discovery, I can go to the point of the loads and stores that fill that object um, don't need to actually fill it. They can just be kept in registers as if I might put it in the object at some point. And if no one ever aliases with it, um, then I know all the loads and stores and I'll pull the values out of registers instead of out of the object. Then I don't need to actually allocate the object. Once I don't have to allocate the object, I save the cost of object allocation. Wait, isn't object allocation cheap? Well, it looks cheap because it's a bump pointer typically. On average, bump pointer and a test and your test hardly ever fails. The real cost in object allocation is it gives you a new cache line for the object in question that the hardware has never seen in a long time. It's pretty much guaranteed not to be in your caches. In other words, it gives you a hard cache miss. And cache misses are very expensive. So as soon as I get it allocated not in the main heap, but in some private space that I'm recycling faster, like a stack, then suddenly the cost it drops to near, you know, very small because it's in the caches. This is a one clock to go get in and out of my stacks, which are typically in your L1. And it's even less if I get it in registers. It's a clear interesting win if an interesting kind of objects can be, uh, have their escape analysis be successful. That is the object is not known to have escaped, whatever that means, to the general heap and therefore be unknown about whom else might touch it becomes a public object and other threads are touching it at whatever order they touch it and you, you lose track of it basically. The problem with escape analysis, and this was a hard push by IBM at the time, IBM Research, was that it's too easy for objects to escape. They, there's a set, set of patterns that people commonly do that end up escaping an object and they couldn't actually determine the lifetime of objects reliably. A person doing hand analysis would routinely discover short lifetime because people have these patterns of, of usage that they're working through that say things like, here I have a temporary thing and this phase, when it's done, all these objects that I made, they're all dead now. And they would know that. 
And if you're in the land of C and C++, there's these things called regions or arenas or whatever. There's a dozen names for them. It's the same notion, which is to say, instead of trying to determine object lifetime one by one with Malik and Free model or at batch, but ignoring the program structure like garbage collection does, I will look at the program structure and say, here's a region where I know I allocate a bunch of objects to do a job. When the job is done, the objects are dead. And then the person can arrange for an arena that just gets reset like a bump pointer to reclaim all the objects at the end of that phase. And if that arena gets reused, then it gets reused sitting in your lower, in your cache levels and becomes much cheaper. So there is a speed optimization to going for an arena. And basically that was an escape analysis done by hand by the engineer writing code. So then you get to these next sort of patterns, a little more fine grain, where I simply can observe, I do a malloc of an object and then I use it for a while and then I never use it again. And if I don't store it somewhere publicly or return it out of a function, then I know that in that function it's dead. Now it's commonly the case that people have uh, uh, factory methods that will return an object and, and those get nested pretty deep where somebody builds an outer level object and they call down into some constructor to fill in some parts. And as you unwind, more parts get filled in. And so when I say I see a malloc or a new point in the Java lingo, and, you know, and, and then if it doesn't leave a function, I've seen it all, well, it usually leaves the constructor. And it usually leaves a nested series of constructors or factory methods. So to actually do an escape analysis, you have to find the point where the object quits being constructed on, that is field stored into, and find the spots where it starts getting being used. And then you want to track a little more and see if you can see that the end of the uses. So as long as it's getting returned out of a function, it keeps escaping that function. And you have to up-level your analysis. And that means you basically inline the analysis into the analysis, all the bodies of things that are returning the, the, the nude object. And after a while, that gets too big and you have to give it up. And that's what's happening to IBM. Unless they had a, a true whole program analysis that they ran very expensive, very deep things. They couldn't actually track the lifetime of very many objects. It wasn't enough to be useful for the cost of the optimization to pay off. Okay, so that's escape analysis. Nice in theory, routinely done by hand by engineers all over the place. By the way, it happens in the Java world as well. People do object pools, love it, love it or hate it. People will do object pools and at a certain scale of object, it totally matters. That's basically an escape analysis done by hand where you say, I'm done with this JPanel struct for my swing application, and so I'm going to recycle it because JPanels are big and hairy, and they're more cheaper to object pool than they are to keep newing it. Um, same kind of game gets played with lots of other things, um, often too much. That's a different story about object pools versus garbage collection. But there is a size and scale where pooling ma makes a sense. And hand-in-hand and hand with pooling is just this notion of having, I knew the end of the usage of this particular object. Couldn't I tell the GC somehow I'm done with it and have something more intelligent happen? In Java, you don't have a way to do that. It just, you have to just drop it on the floor or manually run an object pool. Fine. Escape analysis is done by the JVM um, has a new opportunity that IBM never had, which is to do profiling of the object's usage patterns. And I say profiling, let me step back. Um, same as garbage collectors, the code that's generated typically puts down extra code to track pointer lifetimes. There's card marking in the standard allocator, and in the Azul allocator, you do the read barrier instead of a write barrier. So the card mark's another form for write barrier. Read barriers and write barriers all have the property that they do something with a pointer when it's either being read from the heap or being stored into the heap. It's very cheap, because these operations happen all the time. So they do something very, very cheap. 
and but they drop a little cookie somewhere that the garbage collector can come back later and say this pointer had a, a transition from memory from registers to heap or heap to registers and the the crucial piece of that transition is it tells them they have to do something extra with that pointer okay fine and that's you know what garbage collectors do um write barriers are used in standard the standard collectors these days um if you're not doing Azul's collector, you get a right barrier. What's a right barrier? It's a store of a zero at a particular address. What's the address? Well, you typically take the pointer, you shift it right a whole lot, so you drop all the low order bits off. It's not a pointer no more. You add it to some base of some big pile of marks, and you store zero down because that's a really cheap hardware instruction to do. Later, the garbage collector will sweep through the pile of marks looking for zeros instead of the non-zero it had originally there. And that'll tell us that there was a pointer nearby once you scale it back up that got stored down. He has to go do something with it. Yeah, fine. Okay, so back around to escape analysis. If you, at runtime, do something when you escape a pointer, when you store it into the heap or return it out of a function, then you can observe that this pointer has escaped and do something special with it. So suppose I want to say, here's a pointer, here's an object that I think is a candidate for allocating it locally to this thread only. It's not going to escape the thread. Furthermore, it's not going to escape some narrow range of function calls. And I want to recycle its lifetime faster. I want to do an internal object pooling. So I have a thread local garbage collector I'm going to run. It's like a miniature object pool, but it takes objects of all kinds, and it's being automatically run by the JVM under the hood. And when I make an object, I can put it on this little thread local storage, and no other thread sees it. And this thread local storage gets recycled fast and is small, and it fits in my cache. So it's much, much cheaper to go allocate in there because the objects don't have to go store into the general heap and take a full cache mess to do so. I write into the object, I fill it up, I return from all my, my, my uh, factory methods, and as I'm returning, I'm watching it saying it's still local to this thread, although it's escaped several frames worth. And then comes a point where I, I do some more stuff with it, and I run out of my local, uh, my local heap, and I now want to do a thread local garbage collector, garbage collection run, and I scan my thread stacks. So the self-thread scans his own stacks, which are all hot in his cache. So it's really cheap to do this. And he finds all the pointers he has extant in his own local space, and he then transitively walks them like a true garbage collector. And if he has only thread local objects pointing to other thread local objects, they can point off into the heap, but none of them have escaped the heap yet. Then any pointers that are missing can be garbage collected, just the same way as you do a full JVM garbage collection. But this is a per-thread garbage collector, way the hell faster. The thing that makes it work is that it just has, it has to have an escape detection. If I take a thread local object and I store it into the general heap, another thread might be able to pick it up and do something with it. And that breaks, in, in particular, extend its lifetime. And the current thread that made it doesn't realize the lifetime has been extended because some other thread's using it, and he wants to garbage collect it. Nah, it doesn't work. So you have to do an escape detection to see you detect when it escapes. And if you detect an escape, you have to do something about it. And the usual thing is you do an escape action, which is you copy it from your thread local storage into the heap, and you declare it a general heap object, and you know life goes on. Okay, so this sounds like a lot of extra work. And the trick here is you're trading off the cost of an escape detection that needs to fail rarely with the cost of allocating object in the general heap and taking that cache miss versus allocating it in a thread local storage that fits in your, your L1, L2 caches, right? Your L2 cache in a modern x86 is big enough to run an interesting size heap on. 
So the escape detection is, is letting you remove full cache misses in exchange for some extra CPU cycles to do the detection logic. And, and then if something's going to fail, you actually still have to touch the main heap. So you have to not do it if it's going to fail, because that's just losing work. And you have to have it mostly be successful. And then the escape detection lets you, here's the key, it lets you bridge the gap between run analysis, which has to be perfect, and detection, which can be statistically good. Most of the time, it doesn't escape. But if occasionally one does, eh, you pay the cost then and you're done. And now, because perfection is hard to get, the detection can be kind of loosey-goosey. And if as long as you know, it's correct, in this sense, as long as only a few things leak, it's winning the cash miss costs. And when does that pay off and what are the ratios? So I did a lot of this work at Azul Systems with custom hardware to make the detection cheap. And the, the answer came back with a little bit of work. Okay, I spent on and off, you know, probably a year, but doing other things. So one quarter of my time over the span of a year working on escape detection and got it down to where I could allocate about 70% of all objects thread locally on a big, busy web server under heavy load. And at that time, it was an interesting speed up, but it was pretty darn complicated. And we were getting our you know, pauseless GC background GC working. And we always had tons and tons of cores. And so a background GC that burned more cycles was, was actually perfectly acceptable. And it didn't pay off enough for us to turn it on in production. The hardware was there for supporting it. The software was getting close. It wasn't reliable enough, but we were definitely getting there. When I say reliable, by the way, it wasn't that it crashed, but it had pathological places it would get to sometimes where it would continuously allocate lots of objects thread locally and escape them all to the general heap at huge cost. And that wasn't worth it. And you had to solve for all the pathological cases to get a robust performance gain out of it. It wasn't a freebie. Sometimes it was faster, sometimes not. It was mostly faster, except it was horribly slower. And you had to not have any of the horribly slow things to have it turned on in production. OK. So let me talk a little bit about escape detection and how it would work. So the thing with allocating an object in a thread local storage is you have a different address space. And you want to arrange the address space for thread local objects to be different from the heap objects. It's actually pretty easy. Most heaps are carefully arranged where they know the address span lays out uh, in the you know, total virtual address space because they're going to do horrible things to pointers, like shift them right by 20, or you know, 9, or whatever the 512 is the number on, on hotspot for many years. And then add a base to it and say that's another address we're going to store a card mark. So the heap is well known where it is. So you put your stacks somewhere else and then there's an air gap between the stack and the heap and you just need a range check. And if you arrange it right you can arrange check on a single bit on a high order address bit that's just different between the heap and these stacks. And that's what we did. So we had some high order bit that we could change um, that we were going to get you know probed at hardware and the hardware would ask the question when uh, when this kind of pointer is stored into that pointer plus an offset, you did a range check on the higher order bits, and if they failed some little grid test, you got a software fault, which was an escape event, and then the software did its thing. And if it didn't escape, it wasn't an escape event, and it was a free store, and, you, and away you went. So escape detection was baked into the uh, baked into the store, the pointer store instruction. In software, all I would do is. Zor the two pointers together and then bit test the higher bit. And this can be done in two or three clocks on an x86. Two or three instructions are probably come to one or two clocks. And in order for escape detection to be profitable, it has to only fail rarely. But it can fail, and what do you do about it? So now you get into the more interesting heuristic games. Um, so what we ended up observing was most allocation sites 
had a, a, would escape a couple layers out, but then they would stop escaping. And what was happening was, is you were empirically determining the, the inlining level of the factory. Without ever something telling you this is a factory method, without ever trying to discover it analytically, you could discover it just by uh, profiling the thing. So when you had an allocation site, your first attempt was say, try to allocate it on my local stack and claim it doesn't escape any frames. And then if it escaped a frame, you marked it as, oh, it escaped a frame and I bumped a frame ID on the damn allocation site and on the object and you carried on and you escaped a few more times. And you hit them with a bunch of escape events, but pretty quickly allocation sites would come up and say, I escape X many frames out. And you knew where to land them in your thread local storage when you next allocated such that they almost never escaped again. There was a pretty quick, it, it, it honed in right away to the correct level of escaping there. And the other one is it would escape to the general heap. And you'd flag it as this allocation site escapes to the general heap some of the time. And you know frequently there was patterns where on some paths it would go to the general heap, on some paths it would not. And that's why you did this walk the stack thing to try and see where the common allocation patterns landed, were they commonly in the heap or commonly not? And you did this in the first tier of compilation. So when the heavyweight compiler kicked in in the second tier, it would inline those guys whose allocation pattern said, if you inline up to here, it doesn't escape no more. And that let you do an escape analysis because you would inline just exactly the right things in order to detect the lifetime of the object. So there was a, a two-pronged assault here. There was, you would do the escape detection just to find out what the inlining level was necessary to uh, allow a successful analysis, and you would do the escape to detection to say, nope, but analysis will just fail because this guy, damn it, puts things in the heap. And then you would furthermore, you know, thereafter that allocation site would allocate direct to the general heap instead of on a thread local stack, and you'd quit taking escape events. Then back that up, you'd have uh, a, you know, a general uh, stack uh, thread-based GC that would be able to run through and sweep through the thread stacks and do a classic compacting, you know, standard GC thing, including taking some long-lived objects that were just going to be forever in your thread, never escape, but be constantly in the GC, and throw them in the general heap where they're a hell of a lot cheaper to go garbage collect. Um, so there was a lifetime thing. They got thrown to the general heap if they lived too long. Um, sort of a standard GC issue you have to deal with. And there was another fun, oh yeah, if I decided that you only escaped up to point X and I inlined you up to point X, then, then there were two more attacks that went on. One was we decided that at the end of uh, the function containing X, I could safely unwind the stack and reclaim all that storage. And this was done without, uh, just by looking at the objects to see that I was, the, you know, at the time of the unwind of the frame, I, I knew you're only going to return what has either been escaped already or what you're returning out of the return pointer. So if I could scan the return pointer really quick, I could say these things did or did not escape and, and realize that I could unwind my thread allocation stack. And now I have a true stack-like allocation pattern, the same as you get in C and C++, being run strictly by the JET. And then the last attack was to do a true escape analysis and say, I know the lifetime, here's the beginning, here's the end, here's all the uses, kind of do something with that. And that commonly would turn into, um, I can lift all the values in registers, no one else aliased it to it, I can now actually not even allocate the object at all on any kind of stack. And furthermore, like locks can be elided. Hey, it's thread local, I can throw away the locking because there's no other thread touching it, it's thread local. And here were a bunch of games went on there. So anyhow, that's escape detection in a nutshell. It can be done without custom hardware, but as well, we threw a custom hardware at the problem because we could, and you know, it, it's clearly gonna help a little bit.
would it be useful in a modern x86? Probably. Is it being done right now? I don't think so by Oracle's JVM. Escape analysis, I think, is being done in some small way. I did a pretty aggressive pass of it at Azul Systems, which, of course, that work never saw the light of day. It's unfortunate. And it had some interesting payoffs, but it was hard to beat the Azul Collector, which was just so good at garbage collection. And what else? People manually do this all the time. It's pretty straightforward to look at program structure and decide lifetimes. And is that useful? Well, it complicates your code. Um, in the land of you know, super high-performance C code, that's useful. In the land of Java, it's sometimes useful, but you have to think a little bit harder about it because your garbage collector is going to you know, clean up your messes pretty cheaply. But there are places and times where pooling and or other lifetime management works. People, by the way, do do object lifetime management in Java as well simply because that they can recognize if I inline, you know, I have a bunch of things I have to return, I have to make a stupid object to return, a, you know, 17 different little things. Um, if I just inline this function, I don't have to return it, and maybe that's cleaner looking code than making a junk object whose sole purpose is to return a result that's three different things, right? So it happens in other, you know, in other in garbage collected contexts as well. But, you know, ultimately, it's mostly just a performance hack. The, the inlining to clean up the code does make cleaner code sometimes. It does make the understanding of what's going on, you know, sometimes better, sometimes clearer. But generally not, you know, not always. So I claim it's a good, useful performance optimization hack. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, compilers everywhere, you know, find the time and energy to go do it because it does remove a main memory cost. At, a, at Azul, we had a huge amount of memory bandwidth. So removing the bandwidth costs has not been an issue. x86s at that time were very bandwidth constrained, and removing bandwidth costs on an x86 had a high payoff on a multi-core system. These days, x86s have more, but they're still fairly well bandwidth constrained compared to sort of the supercomputer level computers that you might expect to compare them to. And, and it's still an interesting issue on any heavy core x86 that you have bandwidth problems. And so getting things off of the main memory bus is useful on an x86. Not, never mind the locking cost savings and the like. So anyhow, it's a useful hack, um, but it's kind of a complicated one. I, as a compiler guy, trying to do hard things in compilers was a lot of fun. I had a great time doing it. I'm glad I did it. Um, and I hope it uh, finds its way into a compiler near you. Thanks. Bye-bye.